Hello, dear listener. This is a special episode of the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. This is episode 250, and it is scheduled to be played on the 25th of April, 2020. As you know, at this time in our history, due to the COVID-19 crisis and with special social distancing laws in place, Australians are unable to gather at Anzac Day ceremonies as they normally would. So for years I've actually been complaining about the style and content of Anzac Day ceremonies, so I thought this was my chance to create my own Anzac Day ceremony. And the idea is that if you're standing on the end of your driveway and having a moment of reflection about Anzac Day, then you might care to listen to this podcast as I give you my thoughts and also provide an imaginary catafalque party and a speech and then finish off with the usual things of an Anzac Day ceremony such as the Yod, the last post, a minute silence, a small wreath-laying ceremony and the dismount of the catafalque party. So hopefully you will sit back and listen. A word of warning though, many Anzac Day ceremonies that I've been to potentially cross the line in terms of glorifying bravery and deeds. I won't be doing that. I'll be taking a hard, honest and sometimes brutal look at our history in war and asking some hard questions of you. And there also won't be any Christian hymns, prayers, Bible readings. There'll be no priests or pastors. That will also make this ceremony quite different to the usual. If that sounds good to you, then we'll get going with the entrance of my virtual catafalque party. For those of you who don't know, a catafalque party is a guard usually consisting of four people that stands watch over the coffin and the catafalque of a distinguished person or over a significant monument. What I'd like you to do is to imagine the entry of the catafalque party. There are four soldiers marching stiffly with sharp, exaggerated movements. They raise their rifles. arms. They march again. each member facing outward from the corner of the square. 
again with exaggerated and stiff movements. They look right and then left as they check their surroundings. Their rifles are vertical with the tips on the ground and the soldiers' hands rest on the butt of their rifles. Satisfied there are no threats, they bow their heads. Dear listener, every year on this day we pay our respects, but this year we can't. For many years I didn't attend Anzac Day ceremonies. It was only as my children got older and uh, attained leadership positions in their schools that um, my wife and I started coming along to Anzac Day ceremonies and and we realised how important they were and how good they were and and admonished ourselves for not having attended them before. So we now are um, regular attenders. We realised, I realised, it, it was worthwhile. Ceremonies are important. Gathering together is important. Taking the time to remember gives us perspective in our lives. I've got friends and I know many people who choose not to attend because it is seen as glorifying war. And I've been to some ceremonies that cross that line. Fear not, this ceremony will not cross that line. I think we need to do two things in this ceremony. And in fact, it should happen in every Anzac Day ceremony. First, we should reflect on the terrible things that happened. And second, use that reflection and those memories to think about our future and how we can avoid repeating the mistakes of history. Not enough Anzac Day ceremonies talk about the future. They concentrate on remembrance and forget that the best way to honour the fallen is to use their memory to make sure that their deaths were not in vain. To take that energy and get changes made so in five years' time some poor 20-something young man isn't needlessly blown up by a landmine in some foreign country on the other side of the planet. I'll talk more about that later. In World War II, 22,376 Australians were held as prisoners of war. Private Robert Bell, service number QX16402, of the 2nd 26th Australian Infantry Battalion was one of them. He was my father. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. He actually like most veterans, never said much about the war, and what I'm about to tell you is probably everything I know. He was born in Charleville, September 1922. He had to lie about his age to get into the army. He was too young. He arrived just in time for the fall of Singapore. In the small skirmishes prior to his capture, with the bullets whizzing around, He was with a man who had been in the First World War. And my dad said to him something like, why the hell did you sign up for another war? If I'd have known it was going to be like this, I wouldn't have signed up for this one. Anyway, he was captured and found himself in Changi Prison. You've no doubt seen the pictures, the the terrible conditions that, that the prisoners found themselves in very malnourished. The images of the prisoners were similar to what you see from Nazi concentration camps. 
So it's a pretty tough place, Changi Prison, no doubt about that. A worse place turned out to be the Burma Railway. Some prisoners from Changi ended up going and working on the Burma Railway. What you may not know is that, well, certainly in my father's case, he volunteered for the Burma Railway. He thought that he would get better food. He didn't mind working, and so he thought if he worked hard but got better food, it would be a better option. Little did he know that what would eventuate was that they would work incredible hours, incredibly tough conditions, with even less food, would suffer beatings, malnutrition, malaria and dysentery. Of the stories he told, the ones that stick in my mind were with a bowl of rice. If a fly landed on his bowl of rice, um, some guys in that situation would just scoop out a little uh, spoonful of that rice and throw it away, um, hoping just to have got rid of the contaminated portion. But my father would throw away the entire bowl, which must have been hard, given you were living on virtually nothing. The other story he told me was um, about how many days he worked consecutively and he observed what other prisoners were working and he was aware of, of, of what was going on and in his own mind um, he was quite certain that uh, nobody had worked more days than he did in his camp and uh, it's a credit to his resilience and toughness and I think his life as a country boy growing up in Charleville that um, enabled him to cope with those conditions. Anyway, eventually they returned from the Burma Railway to Changi Prison and the other prisoners, upon seeing the return of the, the guys who'd been on the railway, they broke down in tears and cried. The, the prisoners in Changi Prison, looking at the guys coming back from the Burma Railway, felt so sorry for them that they just cried. It tells you the condition they're in. Anyway, he had his 21st birthday in Changi Prison and eventually the Japanese surrendered. He survived and was repatriated to Sydney. He was fattened up in a camp in Hyde Park and discharged from the army and went on to live a full life as a working-class man, and he managed to spend a 20-year retirement fishing on the Gold Coast. And one other story that I'd like to tell you is that towards the end of his life, he applied for a gold card, which is a medical card that you get if you've been a serviceman injured in service, and he hurt his back while working on the Burma Railway. So... He eventually, uh, after much effort, got a gold card. One of his reasons for doing that was he knew that um, if he died before his wife, my mother, then she would also receive the gold card. Anyway, he had to present himself to a doctor who heard his story and um, heard his life story of surviving the Burma Railway, Changi Prison and a, a life of hard work 
as a working class man at Hume's Pipes. And at the end of it, the doctor reached across and shook my father's hand and said, you are the most resilient man I've ever met. And my dad telling me that story was just tickled pink when he had an official diagnosis from a doctor of his resilience. Anyway, bear all that in mind when we complain about the coronavirus lockdown and being forced to sit at home and watch Netflix. So Dad was one of the lucky ones, it turns out, because he survived. I'd now like to, I'd like you to think about the really unlucky ones who did not survive. The Australian men and women who have died in wars. The numbers are hard to imagine, so bear this in mind. Suncorp Stadium in Brisbane holds 52,000 people when it's full. So Australia, in its short history, fighting wars, over 100,000 people have died. That's two Suncorps. Over 210,000 have been injured. It's really easy to look at those figures and to superficially think, oh, that's terrible, such a shame. It's awful. But I want you to take a moment and really think about it. I mean, really think. Put yourself in the position of a grieving person and really empathise to feel it. I'm going to talk to you about death. There's a big difference between an old person's death and a young person's death. My dad died at 82. I didn't cry at his funeral. He'd had a good innings. For him, every day after 21 was a bonus. It was sad, but it was also a perfectly natural thing to happen. Seven years ago, my son Leon died aged 18. He wasn't involved in a war. It was an accident. I cried so much it hurt, and it still does. When I hear about another young Australian man killed in Afghanistan, fighting some war on our behalf, I think about his parents. I think about the knock on the door. I've opened that door. I know the shock in the pit of their stomachs, the world spinning the loss, the grief as they realise their son is gone forever. No more hugs, no more anything. No career as a doctor, no girlfriend who becomes a wife, no children for him and no grandchildren from him for us. Not even a goodbye, just gone. And as the years go by at special times, Christmas, the birthdays and weddings of siblings, special times when a family gathers and enjoys itself and its history, tells old jokes about incidents that happened in the early years. And all these times, these times which should be joyful and satisfying and peaceful, 
these times are scarred. There's the scar and the pain and the despair that Leon is missing. What would he say if he was here? What would he be doing? He should be here. That, my friends, is the ongoing torment suffered by people who lose a young man. And if he had a young wife and kids, then multiply that. Wars kill young men. So when you hear the figure of 100,000 killed, that's two Suncorps, think of the 200,000 parents. That's four Suncorp stadiums of howling parents. Think of the 300,000 siblings. That's another six Suncorps of crying brothers and sisters. And think of the ten close friends. A million. That's 20 Suncorps of grieving 20-year-olds. That'll... That all adds up to 32 Suncorp stadiums full of misery. Given the pain caused by wars, you would think Australians would avoid them at all costs. And if caught up in one, we would try to get out of a war as soon as possible. But no, the opposite is true. We had to enter the Second World War, it's pretty obvious. No complaints there. But what were we doing in Vietnam, Korea, and more recently? What are we doing in Iraq and Afghanistan? 41 Australian soldiers have been killed in Afghanistan. Why? What is the point of remembering the Anzacs if we accept that young men are being killed in Afghanistan and we can't say why they went and why they're still there. And don't tell me, oh, you leave it up to our politicians to work things out. That's not good enough. You're spitting on the graves of deceased soldiers if you don't complain that young men are dying in unnecessary wars. Turning up once a year and feeling sorry for the Anzacs is not good enough. Instead of a poem or a hymn praising God or a reading from the Bible, I'm going to read something much more important. The names and ages of 41 Australian men killed in Afghanistan. Andrew Russell, 33. David Pierce, 41. Matthew Locke, 33. Luke Worsley, 26. Jason Marks, 27. Sean McCarthy, 25. Michael Fussell, 25. Gary Michael Scher, 30. Matthew Hopkins, 21. Brett Till, 31. Benjamin Renato, 22. Jacob Moorland, 21. Darren Smith, 25. Scott Palmer, 27. Timothy Applin, 38. 
Benjamin Chuck, 27. Nathan Buse, 23. Jason Brown, 29. Grant Kirby, 35. Thomas Dale, 21. Jared McKinney, 28. Richard Atkinson, 22. Jamie Larkham, 21. Brett Wood, 32. Andrew Jones, 25. Marcus Sean Case, 27. Rowan Robinson, 23. Todd Langley, 35. Matthew Lambert, 26. Bryce Duffy, 26. Ashley Bird, 22. Luke Gavin, 27. Blaine Didhams, 40. Nathaniel John Aubrey Gallagher, 23. Mervyn John McDonald, 30. Stepan Milosevic, 40. Robert Hugh Frederick Poate, 23. James Thomas Martin, 21. Scott James Smith, 24. Cameron Stewart Baird, 32. And Todd John Chidje, 29. There's another consequence of losing young men. It turns out that they happen to be great piano players. He used to play every afternoon for you. It gets really hard to listen to piano music. Do you want to know why we fought in Iraq and Afghanistan and before that in Vietnam and Korea? You must think about it and decide whether they were good reasons. I can think of two reasons. The first is because the USA wanted us to, and we pretty much do whatever the USA asks for when it comes to fighting wars. They ask us to join them, so it can be said that there is a coalition of the willing rather than just unilateral American action. We legitimise their wars. And we agree to this because we fear attacks from Asian neighbours, especially China. We calculate that by being a good ally, the Americans will remember and reward our loyalty and come to our aid if we need it. Please, look hard at the United States of America. Today and in the past and in the future. Can you trust them? Can you trust Donald Trump to reward loyalty? And Trump's not an aberration. Future presidents will be nearly as unreliable. The only reason the USA will come to our aid in future is if the president at the time perceives that it is in American interests at the time. That's it. If at the time it suits America, they will help. If not, they won't. Look, we have a strong military. We can defend ourselves against attacks from all all Asian nations with the possible exception of China. We have the benefit of being surrounded by sea. It's very difficult to cross an ocean and invade a country. Even China would have to work hard and suffer some heavy casualties. 
We can defend ourselves and we should proceed as if we have to. We should stop following America into disastrous wars because they cost us lives. Unnecessary lives. Unnecessary grieving. The second reason that we've entered these wars has to do with our parliamentary system and the ability to commit Australia to war. Who decides if Australia goes to war? It's not done as a vote of parliament. No legislation has to be passed. It doesn't even need the approval of cabinet. It's basically a captain's call by the prime minister of the day. If he or she thinks it's a good idea, then off we go to war. I don't care if you're Labor, Liberal, National or Green. Do you really trust any one person to make that decision? This has to change. We should change this system. There should be a vote in Parliament in a joint sitting, House of Reps and Senate. If you can't get a majority, then we shouldn't be going to war. Every vote should be counted, no show of hands. The people responsible for the decision should be known and accountable. Further, every 12 months there should be a vote as to whether we continue with any existing wars. We kick-started a war, we ended a war in Afghanistan years ago. And once you start, it just keeps rolling on. It needs to be reviewed annually. That way pressure can be applied. If you really want to remember the Anzacs, if you really want to pay your respects, you will agitate for this change and you'll vote for politicians who want this change. I'll now move on to the remaining parts of the ceremony. And we're now up to the ode. The ode uh, is recited, or the ode that is recited at Anzac Day and Remembrance Day uh, is the fourth stanza of Lawrence Binion's poem, For the Fallen, first published in the London Times in 1914. They shall grow not old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them.
At this point in the ceremony, there is often a wreath lying. I don't know, dear listener, if you've got a wreath in your hand, but maybe there's a flower nearby in your garden or from a nearby tree, bush. Feel free to pluck that flower and place it on your driveway for your wreath laying ceremony. It's now time to dismount the catafalque party. Listener, I have no idea what you think of the ceremony that we've just conducted. If you found it refreshing that there was no religion, even if you disagreed with everything else I said, maybe you could contact your local RSL well in advance of the next Anzac Day ceremony and perhaps voice your opinion that there'd be less religious input into Anzac Day ceremonies. I have in my hand a copy of a program from the Anzac Day Commemoration Service 2015 held at the Gaythorn Community War Memorial. I'm going to run through some of the religious items on that program. A call to worship by Father Jack Phillips. The hymn, Amazing Grace. A Bible reading by Alex Murden, A Prayer for Peace by Alexandria Hassel, The Supplication by Father Jack Phillips, The Lord's Prayer, The Hymn, Our God, Our Help in Ages Past, and finally, A Blessing by Father Jack Phillips. If I want to go to a church service, I can go to one every Sunday and even more often. Please, a secular Anzac Day ceremony for the future. Some of the topics we've covered about Australia's ability to defend itself and other things that I might have mentioned in this podcast, I'll be talking about with my colleagues in our normal episode of the podcast. It's called The Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. You're welcome to listen, see what you think. Bye. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast, and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like, grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe (laughs) on their behalf on their phone. 
and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon, and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really, the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from a dollar fifty Australian to I think ten dollars and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.